Welcome back to the Long Distance Love Bombs podcast. I am your host, Dr. Jeremy Goldberg, and today's guest is a gem. She is a treat. She is amazing. It is Terry Cole. She is a New York-based licensed psychotherapist. She's a relationship expert. She's the founder of Real Love Revolution and Boundary Bootcamp. She has testimonials on her website from Chris Carr and Gabby Bernstein and Danielle Laporte. She's been doing this stuff for a minute. You are going to love her. You are genuinely going to love the shit out of Terry Cole. She is fun. She's funny. Her voice is like smooth, silky honey. She's brilliant. She shares some very personal, vulnerable stories. This episode is a forest fire, truly. It's so good. She is wonderful. Uh, I've included links in the show notes to a bunch of stuff. You can check her out at the end of the podcast. She mentions that she has a free gift, so I've included links to that. Follow her on Instagram. Check out her work. And without further ado, Terry Cole. Push the second button. We are live and good to go. Terry Cole, welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks for having me, Jeremy. Yeah, I'm excited. Uh, I'm excited to talk to you again. We we were introduced by a mutual friend, Mark Groves, who basically everybody loves. Hmm. And that occurred because my my mother sent me a text message one day that said, "Have you had Terry Cole on your podcast yet? She's great." And that was like how does my mom know who Terry Cole is? (laughs) Mom approved. Mom approved. And I was like, well, I got to make this happen. So uh, if you're listening, mom, I I did it. You're welcome. Um, But for those who don't know you, Terry, do you mind giving a a little intro or a primer of who you are and what you do? Happy to do it. Um, I'm a licensed psychotherapist. I'm a relationship expert. Um, I have these two signature... um, female empowerment courses. One is called Real Love Revolution and one is called Boundary Bootcamp. And I'm actually the author of a book coming out in April of 2021 called Boundary Boss, The Essential Guide to Talk True, Be Seen, and Finally Live Free, because who doesn't want that? I I want that. (laughs) We all want that, Jeremy. (laughs) That sounds sounds like a pretty damn good title, if if I dare say. Um, but I do, uh, I, and I didn't mention this briefly when we were communicating a few moments ago, but I thought it would be fun to continue or maybe lead off from uh, that story you shared with me when we spoke previously about, is that okay, about the, the crackhead thing? <laughs> oh my God, I have so many stories. Believe it or not, there might be more than one crackhead story, so do tell. You, you were, you were talking <laughs> <laughs> I love that I have to clarify the crackhead story. This is not, uh, yeah. So you told me a story about a family member of yours who was involved Mm. in a relationship that really affected you and got you interested in boundaries and taught you all kinds of things. Yeah. And um, and I remember loving that story and selfishly just kind of want to hear it again. Sure. So this was, I was in my 20s, and this was uh, one of my siblings who was older than me and was always in sort of bad relationships and situations. So in the family system, I was the designated oldest child, even though I have three older sisters. 
So that's also sort of interesting. So I took on that role and I was super codependently connected to my sisters, especially this one, because there was a need and I felt like she was always putting herself in dangerous situations. And I was always trying to save her and boss her around and tell her what to do. And I was talking to my therapist about it and I was crying and so upset because she was in a terrible relationship. It was abusive. She was basically living with this guy who was like a crack addict in the middle of the woods with no electricity or running water, like like bad. And I remember when I was crying to my therapist, she finally just like, there was like this silence that fell over the session. And she said, Terry, let me ask you something. What makes you think you know the lessons that your sister needs to learn in this lifetime. And I was like, the hell does that have to do with us getting her out of a terrible situation? (laughs) And I said, listen, I don't know, but I think we can both agree that that lesson doesn't have to be her living without electricity, getting beat up by a crackhead in the woods, right? Can we both agree? And she was like, actually, I can't agree because I don't know what lessons your sister needs to learn in this life for her own evolution. I do not know, but neither do you. And so I sat, first I was pissed, obviously, but then I sat with it for like a minute. And I said, so you mean it's not my responsibility to save her? And she said, Tara, not only is it not your responsibility, It's actually an impossible task because that isn't your side of the street. Your sister must save herself. You've done this before. You've poured, you know, you've thrown lots of money at this. You've, you've done all of these things. And how has that worked? I was like, not so good because here we are again. She's like, exactly. And there was this incredible relief that I felt Because part of my compulsion to save and fix and do is I truly believed it was my responsibility and my obligation because she's my sister and I love her. How could I just turn my back? And what I learned from that scenario is that respecting that my sister and you, Jeremy, and my husband and my grown children and everyone has a right to be self-determined even when the decisions you're making are not good for you. And so how I handled that with my sister is I, I basically said, listen, I can't continue talking to you with you telling me all of these painful, terribly abusive and dysfunctional things that are going on in your life. But if there comes a point where you really want to get out, you really want my help, you see something better for yourself, I'm your gal, right? I'm I'm still here, but I just can't continue talking about this because it's so painful to me. And yet I recognize that it's your life and that you have a right to be self-determined regardless of whatever it is. So that was obviously an incredibly difficult conversation to have. I was crying my face off the entire time. 
And then she said, I understand and I love you and blah, blah, blah. And then we were very distant for about, I don't know, I think it was a year, maybe, maybe a year. And then she got ready. And then she called me and said, do you remember when you told me that if I was ready to change my life and get out of this shithole, basically, that in this terrible situation, you would be present to help me? And I said, yep. She's like, okay, I'm ready. And so I went on to do things that were appropriate. I kept checking in with my therapist to be like, so she's ready. And I said, I would do this. Is it okay if my husband and I had this little lake house that needed, you know, needed some winterizing? And I said, we will do that. And you can move into the lake house and live there. And we'll pay for everything to, while you get on your feet. And then she went to school and she became a CNA, which is a certified nurse's assistant and got sober and got a job and has not been in a relationship like that since. And that was, I don't know, many years ago, 15 years ago, maybe. And so that was a really profound life experience for me because of course the ripple effect was it didn't just apply to my sister the way that I was over-functioning, over-giving, covertly trying to control the outcomes for all of the people in my life, which, what is that called? Oh, that's just called straight-up codependency, but I didn't know that. So that was also the beginning of me really healing my own codependency, too. Mm. Thank you for sharing such a personal story, first of sure. all. Secondly, do you mind defining codependency or how you see it or how it might show up because i know it's a big buzzword that gets thrown around all the time but for someone listening that's like like what actually is that okay so you have lots of different definitions i'll give you a few of those after i give you my own my definition of codependency is being overly invested in the feeling states the decisions and the outcomes of the people in your life to the detriment of your own self-care. So that's the Terry Gold version of it. If you, you know, Brene Brown has a beautiful, very simple, she says, code, um, you know, curing codependency or whatever, not being codependent means letting the people in your life know what is okay with you and what is not okay with you. Right, just speaking your preferences, allowing people to know you. When I started my therapy practice many years ago, I had all women who were very, I feel like, you know, you're, you're sort of attracted to like things. So I had come from a big career. I had been a talent agent, negotiating contracts for supermodels and celebrities before I had my own, you know, sort of dark night of the soul, like, hey, man, there really has got to be something better I could be doing with my one and only life than making Naomi Campbell richer than she already is. So I decided to just quit this job pretty much at the pinnacle of my career. Trust me, everyone in my life was like, uh, why? What are you doing? My father in particular was like, I don't get it. I'm like, you know what is amazing? You don't have to. In the meantime, <laughs> moving on. Um, so I get out of entertainment move into um, being a psychotherapist because I was so enamored by how much therapy had changed my own life. Anyway, back to long way around the barn to get back to the story of codependency, which was the women in my practice, I had a lot, predominantly women, 
um, and some some gay men too, a lot of performers, but they were incredibly high functioning. So when I would bring up the topic of codependency, because I would be seeing their behaviors that I know are codependent, they, they all had this like, no, 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 you don't understand. I'm not codependent, dude, everyone comes to me. I'm the one that solves all the problems for everyone else. I'm not dependent on anyone. I'm the one. And I'm like, P.S., you just described codependency. So what I decided to do is that I created a new moniker, a new name that I thought fit my demographic uh, more readily and one they would identify with. And that is high-functioning codependency because it's much less visible. Because when we, part of the, I think the reason they were rejecting the term is because, you know, you think sort of old school, codependent no more, Melody Beatty, being codependent means you're exclusively involved with an addict. And that is not true. So when I switched it up to high functioning codependency and then I described it, overgive, overwork, are you overly generous? Um, are you the fix-it person for all the people? Um, are you exhausted? <laughs> do you sometimes feel resentful for all the crap that you do for all the people? Are you mad if your amazing advice that you give freely and lovingly isn't followed? All of those things are symptoms of codependency. So I'm not sure where I was going with that story other than to say, this was a huge and remains a huge epidemic, especially in the demographic that I work with, um, which are highly capable, you know, women who are bosses in their life. And yet this is a problem because you also can't do it forever. Like you will eventually end up that level of self-abandonment can only lead to Bitter land, as I like to say, because where else is that train going? The only one stop. Bitter land. Yep. Yeah, I'd describe it as the valley of the suck. <laughs> that's, that's my version of bitter land. I like it. <laughs> but I, I like that reframe because typically, as you suggest, when you think of codependency or as someone who is codependent, there's like this Eeyore, want want. your life is out of control, you're a welcome mat, people walk all over you. You're, uh, you're kind of like um, needy. And so you're describing a highly functional version in which you potentially are a CEO, a millionaire, a successful mom, life is thriving. And there's also this kind of undertow or underbelly of codependency. Um, is that fair? That's fair. And, and how do you know, you know, th those of you lovelies who are listening, how do you know if you're doing this? You can always check if you feel um, constriction or resentment about the things you do for other people, about the way you make yourself available to others. Like, who do you twist yourself up in a pretzel for or rearrange your schedule for? Because if you're doing it, because really, underneath it all, codependency is driven by fear not love and so that was also a really hard pill for me to swallow personally because I really was into my self-image of me as like 
Mother Teresa saving everyone. And the real deal, my therapist had said something so genius at the time. It was like I was so desperate to stop my sister's pain in my conscious mind. And my therapist was like, okay, but if we follow that a little further, what are you really desperate to do? Your sister's pain is completely annihilating the inner peace that you've spent years in therapy cultivating. So no offense, but what you really want is your pain to end. And I was like, damn, you are correct. I do want my pain to end. And I am resentful that I've worked my ass off. I quit drinking when I was 21. Like I did all of these things, got into therapy very young because I really wanted to be self-determined and have this life that was mm, like all of my making, super empowered, could do what I wanted. And anyone who's ever been involved with someone with addiction issues knows that, you know, alcoholics, drug addicts don't have relationships, right? What do they do? They take hostages. I remember you said that to me when we first met and I had to, I think I put my face in my hands and was like, hang on, I just need a minute right now because that is a mic drop moment for me. So yeah. addicts don't have relationships, they take hostages. Yeah, and I did not make up that quote, but I heard it when I, my early recovery, I heard it in the rooms or somewhere and I did exactly what you did, Jeremy. I literally was like, um, hi, full stop. I No more talking. Nobody. I need to just... There was so much resonance for me in that feeling because I also had a lot of guilt that I felt that way about someone I loved so much. And yet the someone I loved so much was not that sister when she was an active alcoholic, right? It was her actual self, the essence of who she is, like she is now, sober, you know? Mm, different humans. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering if you can expand on what you just mentioned about codependency being fear-based rather than a love pursuit. Well, let's take it from the top of codependency, high-functioning codependency. Both of those things are that have a strong desire to control. But so much of it with codependency is that the, the control is covert. It's a covert bid to control the outcomes, the decisions, the feeling states even of the people in our lives. And so it's covert because let's say your person comes home and you're in a fine mood and they're in a terrible mood you might just start dancing as fast as you can. You might just be like, oh, maybe I'll pour you a glass of wine or would you like something to eat? Or, oh, I'm sorry you had a bad, bad day, but you know, at least it didn't rain um, or whatever we do to try to control the way the people in our life are feeling if the way they are feeling is making us uncomfortable. So that is covert and that is control a direct way of handling let, let's say okay so what is a non-codependent way 
of handling your person coming home in a crap mood and you being in a fine mood is compassion. I always say to my husband, if that happens, oh, I'm sorry, babe. Is there anything I can do? If he's in a really bad mood, he'll be like, no, I just want to spend some time alone. Okay, well, then you have your studio. That is the barn. Feel free to go there and spend some time alone because I'm not leaving. But you know what I'm saying. Or, or if he's very upset, my desire, because listen, I'm a recovering codependent. Dude, that is like an every single day discipline. I still want to boss him around. I still want to tell him what to do. I still want to give him all of my fantastic ideas. But instead, I say, how can I best support you right now? And a lot of, and then, I mean, he's conditioned now over the many years of mental health between us. And he'll say, you know, actually, can you make me a cup of tea? Or I don't know, I feel like going for a ride. Do you want to take an adventure with me? I'm always like, yes, 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 to whatever those things are. But that's a direct, healthy, it's me respecting that maybe he's just in a crap mood and he's not ready to give it up yet. His crap mood does not necessarily, is not about me. Now, if he's walking around my house, slamming doors and shit, that's a whole different story, which he doesn't do and wouldn't do, because I would not like that at all. And if he did, I would say, hey, 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 what is going on? If you want to talk about something, we can. If you want to punch something, go outside and punch a tree. But like, no, I'm not going to have the all of the space. Like, I have a right to... Um, get my needs met too. So I'm not saying I'm super intolerant. Like he can stomp a little bit, but like, there's no way I would deal with him like slamming doors and breaking shit. Like not, no, no, because that doesn't work for me. Everyone is different. Mm -hmm. So I think that with the opposite of codependent behavior, when we're trying to covertly control someone is direct and honest communication and an acknowledgement and I also don't feel like it has to be the second. If he walks in the door and I can see he's in a bad mood, when we were first married 23 years ago, I'd be like, what's wrong? What's happening? How can I fix it? Ah, you know, all the things. Now, I just let him be for a while. I'm, I act normal. I'll be like, hey, I'm going to be making some eggs. Are you hungry? Do you want food? May I say yes, may I say no, but I give him the space. Sometimes you just need to be in a shitty mood. And you can do that as long as you are not actually taking that thing out on me. Then you, you have a right because you're still on your side of the street, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, a few things that I've dealt with personally and I've seen in lots of clients. Um, one would be being compassionate while at the same time enforcing your own personal boundaries, like you said. Like, mm -hmm. I respect that you are in a funk, you just got fired, life is raining down shit on you. Mm -hmm. And, like, you don't, it's not okay that you slam the doors and scream and break shit in the kitchen, right? Mm -hmm. I would love to hear your thoughts on how you can kind of manage those at the same time. So that's one jumping off point. A mm -hmm. second would be um, the inner work that you've done to get to a place whereby mm -hmm. you're okay with seeing somebody that you love in, in anger or in sadness and you know and you trust that they're not going to leave and that your own personal life is not going to fall apart or if those two things are related. 
Well, I doubt I'll remember them both if I talk about me, one. So you'll me have too. To bring yeah. me back. Oh, well, then okay. maybe someone else will. But <laughs> let's, let's first focus on the the internal work or, or what the shifts are. I can share my own and what I teach in my many courses. I actually have a course with Mark Groves called Crushing Codependency because we're both recovering codependents and obsessed with helping others heal themselves from this, it is a healable, it's a curable ailment that it can be very tricky to identify. People don't understand what's going on. But when you do, you're like, oh my gosh, I can change this and be happier. So the thing, the biggest shift for me that motivated me to really work on healing my codependency was the, my understanding from my therapist back in the day that not only was I not being of service to my sister when I was fixing and letting her talk about that all the time and giving her money, but nothing was ever changing, but that in essence, I was actually blocking her growth because I was removing the impetus for her growth, removing the pain, removing the need by giving her money, all of those things. And I was like, wow, not only is it, it's the opposite of what I thought I was doing and worse, actually. So I remember that, that when I interact in a codependent way with the people in my life, it is not in the highest good of my relationship with them. And even though their highest good isn't my, isn't my responsibility, it is not in their highest good. And what you're really doing when you're, when you're in a codependent dance with someone, if you're the rescuer, is that you are colluding with the lowest functioning part of that other person rather than seeking to collude with the healthier part of them. Does that make sense? Yeah, I love that uh, visual. I'm a very visual person, but it sounds like uh, rather than calling their highest best self forward and speaking to that version of them, you're going to the sad, lonely victim and saying like, here, I'll bring you soup and pat you on the back so that, you know, you feel better, but nothing actually changes. Exactly. That, okay. That, that is exactly right. So my, my life as a lover, as a helper, as a healer, as a giver, as a just positive overall person, I know Jeremy, you're very much the same given what you do for a living and what you've mm. created, I had to really get in check and look at my own motivations. And it required a lot of bandwidth and um, I needed to be present, like really present and being like, okay, we, had to, we have to create space between the thought and the action. So how did I create space between the thought and the action. And why do I need space between those two things? Because the thought is to do the codependent thing. The space in between those th things gives me two seconds to not take the unhealthy action. And so really the thing that changed my life there was um, rocking a dedicated daily meditation practice. Mm. And it may seem unrelated, but it isn't. Because I definitely was like the last person on planet Earth that anyone would be like, she's a meditator or what? Just very New York-y, kind of an Aries, very, you know, hot, heated uh, 
I don't know, strong, but impulsive in a lot of ways. And what a dedicated practice gave me was about two to three seconds of response time in all of my situations. And that really changed my life. Because how can we change these ingrained and habituated reactions to transform them into responses if we don't have any time? I mean, before the time, of course, you actually need the awareness that you want to change something. Understanding that helping is not helping. I used to have different mantras that I would come up with with my therapy clients to help them in that moment. Like, like you have a chance to power pivot away from the enabling behavior and really thinking about it like it isn't love for the other person that you want to do it. It is love for your own inner peace that makes you want to do that. Because then you can check it off your to-do list and in your mind get on with your life. But the truth is not really because there will be another and another and another. So there's always more where that came from, so to speak. Mm. So I think that being able to identify yourself as someone who leans towards codependency, then move into how do I create this space? And then the next thing every person listening to this is thinking or wondering, well, what is the other person going to say do, feel. I don't want them to think I don't love them. I don't want them to perceive me as mean, as bitchy, as selfish, as self-centered. I mean, I've heard it all and I've heard it a zillion times. Mm. And what I say is that you've got to remember that you are only responsible for your side of the street. And what does that mean? That means your words, your thoughts, your actions, But as my teacher, David G., would say, and I think it's actually from a Rumi quote, never the fruit of them, which means that you may draw a healthy boundary out of love with someone and say, you know what, you know, cousin Bobby, I cannot bail you out of jail this for the fourth time in one year for public intoxication or whatever, because I told you the last time it was the last time. And this is something you need to figure out on your own, and I love you enough and have faith in you that you can, and I also know that you are the only one who can. If I do it, it is a temporary fix. It is your job, it is your life, and I love you enough to respect that, you know? Yeah, I second everything that you just said, in particular, the bit about meditation and cultivating that two seconds of pause. Uh, Mm. Like I used to be a guy that made fun of people that meditated. I was like, oh, yeah, you're just going to sit there and not do anything. And that's going to change your life, is it? Okay, sure. Like cute (laughs) idea. But now as a as a dude who's been in several relationships since like that two second pause saves me hours and hours of conversations it saves me uh sadness it saves me uh conflict it saves me drama like all of it of just being that moment of like i'm gonna bite my tongue right just for a moment and then i'm just gonna say "Mm, that sounds hard 
<laughs> That's it. Yes, please. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because do you know what you, I also, if you're looking at like, you know, stereotypically heteronormative relationships, if we were looking at, you know, heterosexual male, um, or I don't know if we call it sick gender. I'm not sure. I, you know, I'm, I'm not yeah. so up on all the proper terminology, but you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. That the biggest complaints that I would get in my therapy practice from women is that, you know, when they come home, if they're upset about something, their partner just wants to fix, fix, fix. Just, well, why didn't you do this? And next time do that. And here's an idea. And I've got a friend and you should do this and do that. Women just want to talk. At least the ones, you know, they were like, I just wanted to vent. I just, I just needed to be witnessed and heard. So I think it's important in relationships, especially codependent relationships, that if one person is sort of the identified fixer, the identified helper, and the other person is the identified, you know, hot mess, that if you don't want to be the identified hot mess and you want to be more empowered in your life, is that you have to tell your partner what it is you need. You must ask for what you need. So you can say, hey, I have something I want to share with you. And I could really just use a compassionate ear. So I'm not looking for any input, even though you have great ideas. And trust me, when I'm in the brainstorming phase of how to fix this, you will be the first person I come to. But right now, what would really help me is if you could just hold space, just sit with me, just let me vent it all out. I really just need to be seen by someone who loves me and feels compassion towards what I'm experiencing. Mm. Yeah, that. I had to learn that one the hard way. Of like, wait, doing nothing is actually not only doing something, but it's doing the right thing. You just want me to sit here and, and listen to what you're saying and, and like recognize how hard it sounds? Like, you don't want me to fix it and brainstorm no. and... It's like, uh, oh my gosh. And so what, what you described, I think, really eloquently was communicating the thing that you need. But I think from the other side, if we're continuing this kind of um, this scenario, as the dude, I often will say something to the effect of, like, how can I best support you right now? Like, what do you need? Do you need me to just listen? Or are you on the phase of, like, we can try to fix it? And And that question in itself has also been... Like, I feel like I have like five, maybe 10 things that I say to my partner regularly that like sustain the relationship uh, in a meaningful way. Yep. Like what? Give us some. So like that, that's definitely one is like how, and, and like to be fair and to give credit where it's due, like my partner is, is one of the most eloquent, healthiest communicating in touch with her heart humans I've ever met. And mm-hmm. that's been a real call my ass forward <laughs> in a big way. <laughs> Um, so from her, yeah. So she will often interject if I'm busy and she'll say, Jeremy, may I? So, um, because she used to work in a kitchen as a chef and that's just the terminology that they say. So, Oh, Kendra, may I? And, and just that kind of polite interjection helps. Um, how may I best support you? Um, how are you feeling as opposed to what are you thinking? Um, Mm -hmm. so for her, I will often say, what's a two word check-in? which is what we do with clients as well. And for me, what she's learned to do is like on a scale of one to 10, where are you? Because I'm more 
numbers analytical. Uh, so we're getting to the same thing, which is like, how's your life? Uh, but we're doing it in ways that speak the other person's language, so to speak. So what is, um, what's a two word check-in? So when would you use that intervention and what might she say? We, we use it like nearly every day. So yesterday we were flying to, um, to Vancouver from Edmonton and we were kind of walking through the airport to our gate and it was quiet and I was being quiet. And she's like, Jeremy, what's like, what's, how are you doing? Like, what's a two word check-in? And I'm like, you know, I'm just feeling quiet and uh, hungry. Right. Uh, and so she knows, oh, he's not mad at me. He's like, his life is fine. He's just hungry. Right. And he's, and he's tired. That's why he's being quiet. Um, so things like that, or, you know, like those moments, of course you do, you're a professional and you've been <laughs> married for decades, but those moments when you can kind of feel something is amiss, it's like, you know, I, my little spidey sense is telling me that you know, you're thinking about something or you need to say something. So we'll, we'll use the check-ins in those instances. Um, yeah. As a Vic, gateway Vic to and a, I will, yeah. yeah, a gateway to a bigger conversation. Yeah. Vic and I will, sort of keeping keeping the conversation open, I'll say, you know, um, what's on your mind? Like if we're driving. Yeah. And in the beginning of our relationship, because I'm so curious and because I wanted to know, I was so in love, I still am. Just, he's the most fascinating person I've ever, and the most decent, just amazing. So I was always quite interested in what was on his mind. And in the beginning, I would be like, um, hey, babe, what are you thinking? And he would be like, nothing, 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 like like as if, you know? And then I was like, well, no, I'm not, I'm not accusing you of thinking anything. I know it might sound weird, but I'm actually full-on interested in any random thought that might be happening in your mind right now <laughs> and he would be like oh. so it took a while for him to get it and now both of us say what are you thinking mm -hmm. and it's a way to stay connected and i'm i am literally always interested no matter what the hell it is he's thinking because here's the thing i'm always interested in vic you know so even if what he's thinking is something weird or I don't know about raising chickens because we're going to be doing that soon or whatever, I like to know that that's what it is. And then we'll talk about it. So those are ways of, of checking in, but also of keeping kind of um, an open line of communication. And of course, when you're together for years, I can feel the slightest energetic shift. And a lot of times, because he's so predictable, I, I know what's on his mind to a degree. And sometimes I won't ask if I feel like he's working something out. I don't want to be intrusive. It's not like, you know, in unhealthy relationships where you get back from therapy and the person's like, tell me what you talked about with Ruth. I, I was in a relationship like that years ago. I was like, how about none of your mother effing business? Like, why do you want to know? How about if there's anything that you need to know, I'll tell you. But I know I've had clients where their partner was very much like, if you don't tell me everything, then you're not being honest. Using the, like trying to beat them with the honesty stick. And I'm like, that's called being codependent, having no boundaries and forgetting that you are actually two fully formed individuals. And then we come together in a relationship to create something that is so unique and so beautiful that if we never came together, it would never exist in the world, you know? Mm. 
You just reminded me of another thing Kendra often says, which is, uh, I'm not ready to talk about it right now. I need some time to process mm. as like a hand up. Love it. <laughs> yeah. In a very loving way. And that's, I was just going to say a loving know, hand up. A though. very loving hand up as like, nope, I'm not going to speak to you about this right now. And I have learned to be like, okay. And trust that uh, when she is ready, she will bring it to my attention and we will chat about it if required. If there's nothing to right. talk about, she'll just, you know, continue living. Exactly. But that's also having respect for your partner as mm-hmm. someone who is fully self-determined. You know, and I, I always thought about this after being in other relationships before my husband, I really didn't want to get married. Like that was definitely not my trip. So I got to a point in my life, but I'm such a lover. I always had long, you know, I, I just, I had long-term, you know, I was like one of the serial monogamous, you know what I mean? Yeah. But then it would get to the point where the other person would be like, Hey, I think we should move in together. And I'd be like, Hey, I think we should break up. Like the, the moment someone was like, I think I'd go look at rings. I was like, bye. Like that. I was like, nope, don't want to go there. And I got to the point in my life where I had built this really beautiful, I mean, not perfect, but, but a very satisfying, full, happy life. I had the same friends I've had since literally I was five years old, the same, that's many decades. Three sisters, very close with my mom. My, my dad passed away many years ago fulfilling careers, travel, did did what I wanted. And when I finally just questioned this whole social narrative about my value being attached to being with someone else or getting married or having children or whatever that thing is, I just got to the point where I was like, okay, I would absolutely 100% when I was in my early 30s, I am choosing to be alone, happily alone, rather than being in another relationship that is not fulfilling or to just be in a relationship so I can say I'm in a relationship because when I was alone, quote unquote, I wasn't lonely. Mm-hmm. And when, I mean, they, they always say it happens when you're not looking or when you don't want it. And I guess that's probably true. But I said to my friends, and I can tell you right now, if it were to happen, the unicorn, the whatever, Like, no more unexamined minds. Like, I'm not dating another human being who has not had 20 years of therapy. Like, I don't care. And I was only in my 30s at that point. I was like, do not care. So I met my husband through when I was a talent agent. One of my clients introduced me. And this client himself was always asking me out and was a total player. And then one day he said, you know, you should go out with my best friend from high school. He's nothing like me. And I was like, well, there's nothing like you. Maybe we'll see. And so that's how I really met my husband on an old-fashioned kind of blind date. And I remember saying on the first date, the first solo date we were alone, he was like, you know, first I said, how do you feel about therapy? And he's like, oh, I'm a big fan. I was like, but actually how big? And he was like, oh, I've had a lot of therapy. And I was like, if you had to approximate how much? And he was like, oh, at least 20 years. (laughs) I was like, okay, I think date two can happen. And then he said to me, what do you want? Can I just ask you like, what do you want in life? And in the past, I would have been calculating and thinking, well, what does he want? Should I say what? I don't even, I was so done. 
I just literally said all the things that I wanted. I want someone who loves life. I want someone who has their own big career so they don't care. They don't feel threatened by the fact that I have a big career. I want someone who has their own money. You don't have to have enough money for me. I've got my own money, but I don't want you to need my money. I want someone who's open to buying a little lake house somewhere. I want someone who might consider having a kid or two, even though because Vic was a widower and already had three teen, mm. you know, young teenage sons when we got together. Um, I want someone who's done their own work. I want someone who is interested in meditation and in those types. I mean, I just literally talked for like 20 minutes. And then I was like, yeah, that, that's what I want. He was like, sounds good. <laughs> what do you want for dinner? <laughs> like, exactly. what are you going to order? <laughs> I was like, okay. Mm-hmm. And that was that. <laughs> yeah. And it's, just, it's so powerful to actually own your truth and to speak it out to a potential partner. Right. Cause I, I'm sure you get this all the time. What, what date number should I say that I want kids or that I don't want kids? And it's like mm-hmm. the first ones, so you don't waste the other two or three or four dates and you're incompatible. Yep. Why is there such a fear around speaking our desire? Well, I mean, that's a separate podcast, actually. It is, but actually okay. it's, it's about boundaries, right? It's about yeah. this fear of rejection. Mm. This, we, we have a primal as human beings, right? We know we all have our, you know, primal fight, flight, fear, right? This built-in protection system. So if we feel threatened, right, if we feel threatened, what happens? The amygdala gets triggered, starts like pulsating adrenaline and all of these things through our body. So when you think about it, our system is the same, but the threats in our daily life have changed because the likelihood of you being stalked by a saber-toothed tiger right now, walking down Fifth Avenue or anywhere, is slim to none probably, right? Hopefully. <laughs> so now we have the emotional things that that are like that. So social isolation, um, being rejected, these, these interpersonal mm. emotional experiences, our body can experience those as mortal threats, although they're not. So it really does make sense that we want to avoid being rejected because think about Back in the day, if you were rejected and you got thrown out of the pack, I mean, you would die, most likely. Like, that would happen. So that's real. But somehow our body never got the memo Mm. that the threat is not life or death anymore. I mean, listen, unless it is. If someone has a gun to your head, going into fight or flight is amazing and could probably save your life. But most of us are not in life and death situations all the time. So I think that the social rejection of being afraid if I say one thing on this date of someone, it seems like there's so much potential. I'm gonna ruin everything. And so I always try to give my my clients this mindset shift that like, you don't even friggin' know if you like him or her yet. You don't even know. Why are we investing so much time and energy just to avoid being rejected? How about let's decide if we even like this person before we worry so hardcore about how devastating it's going to be if they reject us. I mean, is it? No. You might find out they're not nice and you don't like them. 
So tell the truth. You want kids? Great. Say it. You don't want kids? Great. What are we wasting our time for? Exactly like you said, Jeremy. You know, like, let's just tell the truth. And also look at the signs that someone is giving you. If you're in a dating app and someone's like, can't wait to talk to you Friday night at eight, I'll call you then. And they don't. Unless they were abducted by aliens or run over by a bus, my feeling is you would like to take notice of the fact that this person is someone who doesn't keep their word. And then if they ping you on Monday being like, what's up? Don't just act like that didn't happen. You say, I, I don't even let it, I don't even let the day go. I don't care. Someone's supposed to call it eight. I text him. Are we talking or no? Because, hi, I've got a life that doesn't include waiting around for you. So, but, you know, dating, me, maybe that's me now, older and married for a long time. If the person then Monday gets in touch and is like, what's up? Pretends that they never said they would call you at eight o'clock on Friday. You must say, hey, I was worried you got abducted by aliens. I had you in my book Friday night at eight, but you didn't call. So I assumed you flaked. See what they say. If they're all irate, any any answer in my book, unless there really was a dramatic, traumatic thing that happened. Yeah. Here's the deal. We don't even know each other yet. And you're already, you're already not keeping your word to me. And unless you yourself are someone who is ambivalent about the dating scene, then it might work for you perfectly, quote unquote, in an unconscious way to have someone else who is ambivalent. Because that is what that speaks to you, right? Why don't you, why, why does someone say, I'll call you at eight o'clock and not call? They have ambivalence, they may have attachment issues, right? Mm -hmm. So anyway, that was long way around the barn. We weren't even talking about dating, but I just jumped us over there. <laughs> I, I loved it. And, and um, I'm conscious of some boundaries that you set up before we began around time and that you have many powerful things to do today. And I'm wondering if I could just ask one more question and then we could wrap it up. Of course. Does that be right? So going back to this idea of codependency and covert contracts, et cetera, it seems like one important aspect of resolving that is is learning to be okay with your own emotional experience. What I mean is if you are not comfortable being sad or angry, then you will attempt to resolve it very quickly when your partner is being sad or angry, right? That's something yeah. that I've kind of unpacked in my own life. It's like, oh, I don't want you crying because when I cry, I hate it and I judge myself and it's a whole story. Yep. So can you speak to that or how someone can begin to find comfort in their own sensations? I can. You know, and part of what we're talking about is emotional self-regulation, right? Yeah. Meaning that we can accept, acknowledge, process our own emotions so that we're not in such a reactive state in our life. And what you said was really interesting because by you trying to fix, let's say, if you're uncomfortable when you're crying, and then your partner or your sister or your friend or your mom is crying and you find yourself doing the same thing. You're really like projecting the way you feel onto them. And 99.99999% of the time, 
uh, we're wrong. That is not, that's not what they need. That's not how they feel. But it's, but it's good to know and to notice that insight that you just shared. So how do you even start the process of looking at your own emotions and sort of befriending them, let's say, being an acceptance that being a human being, we have these core emotions, sadness, anger, disgust, like there's a whole happiness, joy, right? There's a whole slew of them. And the reality is we actually don't have the power to not have them simply because we don't like them. What we can do is we can turn them into something else. I grew up in a home where nobody was allowed to be angry. So therefore, I naturally and unconsciously transmuted Im immediately with no effort my anger into sadness because this was a more socially acceptable feeling in the home I grew up in. So these are sort of like the silent agreements we have in the family of origin. Like we all know what they are. No one has to tell us about rules of engagement that no one even said, but we get it because we live there and we know. So realizing that all of your emotions is lo loving them, embracing them, even if you don't like feeling them, is the only path to being legitimately and authentically fully expressed in your life and being fully yourself. Because if we disavow an entire emotion like anger, like I was doing, that's a whole part of me that I don't get to explore or know. That's a part of me that the people in my life don't know, but they're confused as shit because it isn't like anger is like, oh, you don't like me? Okay, I'm going to go away. What it does is it comes out in passive aggressive expressions of anger or displeasure, the door slamming, the being short, the not texting back for 17 hours to punish the other person, sarcasm. We have, there's a million ways that we passively aggressively will express an emotion that we are uncomfortable saying you know i'm really pissed you told me you were going to do that thing or i'm really disappointed and in fact i'm actually angry about that i do not appreciate the way you spoke to me or whatever you're angry about but if it feels so threatening to you like it did to me before nine thousand decades of therapy you don't even know you're doing it so part of it is what I teach in my courses. And actually, I have a Real Love Revolution course starting in January of 2021, where we do a lot of this work, where, you know, we go into what I call the basement of your mind, which, of course, is your unconscious mind, to open up these boxes that we kind of hoped we would just leave there forever and ever and never look at. But we look at them and we do it as a group in a very safe and sacred space so that we know what we're dealing with. Because if it's only the stuff that's in your conscious mind, but you don't understand your behavior or why you're repeatedly in a relationship with women who are unavailable or men who are unavailable or humans who are unavailable, that answer, it's not like I got your answer. I don't. But I'm a damn good GPS to get you to that answer within yourself that will make it all make sense. And then you can liberate yourself with a really good guide, that's me, 
liberate yourself from that repetition so that you are open and now become visible to people who are available to be in a relationship. Mm. That was that really well said. Yeah. Well, thanks. But I have, a, I have a gift though, too. Yeah, I was going to say, I think you, that leads perfectly into your present for the person it, listening. It does. And because I can't stop giving things away and because I love, 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 and because I want all of you listening to have what you want in life, there's more than one thing in this gift. So to get your gift, let's just say you're going to go to terrycole.com. That's T-E-R-R-I-C-O-L-E.com forward slash. And then what did we say it was? L-D-L-B. Long L-D-L-B, distance love bombs. L-D-L-B, long distance love bombs. But it's just the initials. So just L-D-L-B. Terrycole.com forward slash L-D-L-B. Okay, so there's two things in there. One is uh, the More Love Starter Kit. And this is perfect for you, whether you're single or in a relationship. It's for anyone who wants to deepen the love in their life, walks you through the process to learn the skills to really create healthy love. There's also a gorgeous guided meditation that supports integration of this material. It's really about up-leveling the love in your life, but it's for everyone. You don't have to be single to enjoy it. And then there's the Raise Your Love Vibe. So this is a five-day experience where we send you emails every day and it really opens your heart and your inbox because it's just five days it's super duper simple um, where each day I give you a, a proven technique so that you can basically see where you are and again all to deepen the love within yourself because really self-love is the only path to any other legit love right mm-hmm. so I hope you guys love it because I loved making it for you yeah Thanks for the generous offer as well. And I know that you are on Instagram as well. So I'll include links to all this stuff in the show notes. If you're listening and you're like, L-D-G-L, what? (laughs) It's like, just click click the thing in the show notes. It'll take you right to the gifts. Um, Terry Cole, you are such a fucking gem of a human. Thank you so much for all you are and all you do. I'm honored to to chat with you for an hour and, and... I think I have to say my mom was right. It was a good suggestion. It was a good fit. Um, oh, I, I hi, just, mom. Hi, mom. <laughs> <laughs> hi, mom. And yeah. thank you so much for having me, Jeremy. I love what you're doing in the world, and I love supporting more of that paying it forward. Yes, yes, yes. Mm. All right. Talk to you soon. Bye. Right? Right? I warned you in the intro. I said, you're going to love Terry Cole. This episode is fucking awesome. And it was, right? So as mentioned, I've included links in the show notes to all of the stuff. You can check out her book. You can check out her free gifts, her guides. Get on her email list. Check her out. Get in her world. Slurp the knowledge that she has available online right into your soul. It will make your life better. Thank you for being here. If you'd like, you can check me out on Instagram at Long Distance Love Bombs. I also send out a weekly email of my favorite stuff, podcast articles, all that stuff. I've got a monthly membership called Team Never Give a Upper that is rad. I teach a monthly workshop, and we have a live Q&A with the podcast guest, and there's a group chat. So if you need support, community, connection right now, that's the spot. Got a bunch of kind-hearted souls in there. It's fantastic. I've included a link for that as well. And thank you. Thank you for being here. I sincerely appreciate you. 
I appreciate you listening to my voice right now, spreading the word. If you could leave a five-star review, that would make a big difference for me in getting the word out and the work out and attracting good guests like Terry Cole just sang. So thanks. Share it with your friends and family. Tag me on Instagram. I love seeing that stuff. It really does fill my heart. I adore you and I appreciate you. Keep shining bright and smiling big.